If you have a Bible, though, grab it, open it up. If you have uh, an app, Bible app on your phone, open that up to Matthew chapter 13. If you don't yet have a Bible, there's some here over beside Kirk, and those are free, our gifts to you. Take one, read it, give it away, whatever you'd like to do with it. As you go to Matthew chapter 13, which is the book of the Bible that we've been studying, I believe this is week 68 now, uh, for some time we've been going through the gospel of Matthew, uh, I want to ask just a couple of questions to kind of prime the pump uh, to prepare uh, our hearts and our minds uh, for what we are going to hear this morning from Jesus. So let, let me start with this question. How would you define the good life? In, in other words, uh, another way of thinking about this, what is the main pursuit of your life? Like if you were just to sit back and uh, maybe have a conversation with myself or someone and you were just to be really honest, really honest about where you're at, what is the main pursuit of your life? What is the one thing that you want more than anything else? It could be like you, you want to retire with a measure of comfort. Uh, you want a, a, a particular size of house. Uh, you want a, 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 you know, to achieve something in your career. You want your family to look a particular way. Maybe you're single and you want to get married. Maybe you're married and you want to have a family. Like there's just something that if you could just have that something, that would at this point in your life, that would be the full expression of uh, the good life, a happy life. Uh, maybe there's a measure of brokenness in your life. Maybe there's marital strife, uh, relational strife with your kids. And, and if that could get resolved, if that could go away, if that could you know, be reconciled or fixed, the broken thing that is there be taken care of or at least put to the side, that would, that would give you what you want. That would give you the good life. Another way of asking this question would be, what would be the win? or the one thing that would just kind of put you over the top? What is your dream? What is your dream? What is your dream? And then finally, if Jesus called you to sell all of that, your dreams, your hopes, your aspirations, would you do it? Could you do it? Could you do it with joy? Could you do it with joy? Matthew chapter 13, Jesus is going to compare for us the kingdom of heaven like a treasure, a buried treasure found in a field or a pearl of great price that is worth everything. And the question that we're going to have to keep coming up against in this parable is, how much do we value Jesus? How much do we value him? Uh, really quickly, before we get to the parable, I want to remind us of what's been happening in the Gospel of Matthew. So as we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11, 12, and 13 are sort of a section uh, of Matthew's gospel, whereby Matthew is trying to make a particular point to us. Uh, if you remember, probably don't remember, because I barely remember, but Matthew uh, chapter 11 and 12, that was in 2002. Um, <laughs> Jesus is in, having all these encounters with all these people. And uh, what Matthew does so clearly is he, he creates a dichotomy or a stark contrast between two particular groups of people. Uh, there's what Matthew calls the crowds. These are the, the hanger-oners, the fanboys of Jesus. They like to be around him. He's doing things. He's performing miracles. He's pontificating and waxing eloquent. And he's, he's interesting, 
right? So it's fun to be around interesting people. It's fun to be around those uh, who are doing, uh, you know, unusual things. It's, it's, it's really interesting to be there. But then there's this other group of people that, that Matthew describes as the disciples or Jesus's closest followers. Uh, and all of this comes to a climax in, at the end of chapter 12, where Jesus actually calls the disciples his family, like his most intimate people. And he distinguishes between the two groups by saying, my family, my disciples, my mother, my brothers, and my sisters are those who do the will of my father. In other words, those are the people that have bought in fully. The crowds always leave. The crowds always get pushed away. The crowds always walk away from Jesus because things get hard and get real. And Jesus says awkward, really uncomfortable things like the things that I just said and like the things he's going to say uh, to us this morning. And when push comes to shove, the crowds eventually leave. But my family, my disciples, they're here. They're not perfect. They don't always get it right, but, but they're here. And then we come to Matthew chapter 13, where, where Jesus now is going to tell us a whole bunch of parables. Matthew's going to record a whole bunch of parables, whereby Jesus is doing exactly the same thing. He's talking about the kingdom. And as we said last week, and has been said many times as we've been going through chapter 13, parables are like windows. They're, they're windows in two ways. They're windows into the kingdom of heaven. We get a bit of a, a, a picture, if you will, or, or we get a peek behind the veil of what the kingdom of heaven is like. But they're much more than that. Matthew, in, in, uh, in his recording of this, and Jesus in his telling of these parables, is not just trying to tell us what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's actually wanting to give us a window into our hearts. He's wanting to give us a window into what's really going on in our hearts as we are confronted with or presented with this idea of the kingdom, this idea of the crowds and the disciples. And really, all of Matthew chapter 13 is, is forcing one question on us. Jesus is kind of pushing this one question, which are you? Which are you? Are you part of the crowd or are you one of my disciples? Are, are you part of the crowd and when things get tough and the temperature gets cranked up and the call gets too high, do you just walk? Do you leave? Or are you those who do the will of my Father in heaven? You're, you're actually my family. And so, again, this week is going to be no different. This is a, a hard text. I've, I've been telling many people this is one of my favorite texts, uh, only because, like, it, it's, it, Jesus just makes things, it, it's so clear. Like, this is like preaching 101, right? It's only, we're going to go through, like, two verses this morning, so I didn't have to read a lot to prepare for this morning, okay? Uh, but Jesus is going to do just that. He, he's going to press this question on us, and we, and we have to wrestle with it. Like, like, I think I said this last week, if everything fails uh, but we wrestle with this question that Jesus is going to ask, then this morning was a smashing success. But if everything goes well and we hear a cutesy sermon and sing some cutesy songs and feel good in our hearts and got a little pump, pump you up life coach message, but we didn't wrestle with the deep things of the kingdom like Jesus is trying to get us to do here, then, then we have failed this morning. We have failed. We, we have not we have not wrestled with what Jesus is calling us to wrestle with. So Matthew chapter 13, if you have a Bible, turn there. The verses will be on the screen behind me. But here's what Jesus says. The kingdom of heaven is like, and this is how he starts all of his parables. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it, he hid it again. 
And then in his joy, went and sold all that he had and bought the field. And then again, verse 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. When he found one of great value, he went away and he sold everything he had and he bought it. So let me just unpack this parable uh, really quickly for us. So Jesus starts in verse 44 by describing a treasure in a field. It seems curious, doesn't it, that you would find buried treasure in a field. To us, in our modern day context, that's a foreign idea. In first century Palestine, not a foreign idea. Uh, at this point, finances, money, uh, the, the way the economic system worked, money wasn't really a commodity. There weren't banks that you put uh, your treasure in. There wasn't investments. You didn't have RSPs and government matching programs or anything like that. So what would happen is people would have wealth. They would accumulate family heirlooms and things of value, and they didn't have anywhere to put them. So they would literally bury them on their properties. That's what they did. Uh, but then again, first century, very different than our context. It wasn't common to own the same piece of property for your, own, your whole life because there was always political upheaval and government changes and social upheaval. And so people were you know, being overtaken by other people and kicked out of their properties. And so what would happen, it was not uncommon, is people would be on their property, they would be looking around and they would come across buried treasure. Now I want you to notice something. Uh, this man in verse 44, he comes across buried treasure hidden in a field. Let me just be clear here. Uh, this isn't his field, right? He has to buy the field. And so th there's a sense here in which uh, it, it appears as if Jesus is uh, encouraging or calling us to deception, right? Like, like he sneakily bought the field. That's not Jesus's point, right? That's not what Jesus is getting after here. We know that because the points are similar in verse 45 and verse, for, verse 44 and 45. And so I don't want you to, to deduce, you know, business ethic practices from verse 44 is what I'm trying to say, right? Or real estate purchase practices. That's not Jesus's main thrust here. But what Jesus's main thrust is, and, and pay attention, look at verse 44, look at the second half. When a man found it, he hid it again. And then in his joy went and sold, notice, all that he had and bought the field. In other words, this man who bought the field wasn't a rich man. And we know this because he had to liquidate all of his assets. He had to sell everything. He had to impoverish himself to buy the field. But notice what Jesus says. He says he did this in joy, in his joy. In his joy, he went and sold everything. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is he recognized, he realized that there was more worth in the field with the buried treasure, then there wasn't everything he had. Very important for us to understand that. Very important. Then look at verse 45. Here Jesus talks about the kingdom of heaven being like a merchant looking for fine pearls. Again, context matters. To us, pearls aren't that valuable. In this context, pearls were extremely valuable. In fact, history tells us that Cleopatra had a pearl that was worth 25 million denarii. In that context, in that, in that time of history, one denarii was worth a day's wage, which meant in our modern economy, that pearl would have been worth $4 billion. Extremely valuable. And what Jesus is saying here is there's a merchant, so it's a merchant who knows a lot about pearls, who's actually looking for a fine pearl. And he comes across a pearl that's of extreme value. It doesn't tell us how valuable, but we know it's extremely valuable. How do we know? Because look at what Jesus says next. He says the exact same thing in verse 45 that he says in verse 44. When he found one, when he found what? A fine pearl. It was one of great value. He went away 
and sold everything he had and bought it. So we have a merchant who's looking for a pearl of great value, or some would know this as a pearl of great price, and he finds one. He finds one of impassable worth, so much so that he sells everything he has. So this might be obvious, this, this might go without saying, but there's a theme here that Jesus is not so subtly getting at. It was worth everything. It was worth giving up everything to buy the buried treasure in the field, to buy the pearl. Why? Because of their value. In a sense, what Jesus is saying is these things were so beyond value, invaluable, that it was literally worth giving up everything in order to get them. And so Jesus' point in this parable is the kingdom of heaven has so much value that it is worth selling everything to get because in return you actually get everything. That's the point of the parable. But what does it mean? What is Jesus actually saying about us? If a parable is a window into the human heart, it's a window into what's going on in our hearts, what is Jesus saying to us as he unpacks this parable? Is Jesus saying that the only way we can enter the kingdom of heaven is if we sell everything? Is, is Jesus saying that the only way to truly, to truly enter into the kingdom of heaven is to sell all of our properties and all of our possessions, or at least be willing to? If you're not willing to do that, then there's no way you can enter into the kingdom of heaven. I want to make something abundantly clear to us this morning. Because this can easily be misconstrued. Jesus is saying, what he's not saying rather, is that you can buy your way into the kingdom. In other words, it is possible to read this parable and interpret Jesus as saying you can earn your way into the kingdom through some sort of thoroughness of commitment. If you demonstrate that you are very committed to Jesus, so much so that you would be willing to sell property and possessions or give of yourself or, or sacrifice or serve, whatever, whatever the case is. If you demonstrate that you're willing to do this, that you can somehow earn your way into the kingdom, Jesus is saying that's not the case. And now let me pause here because some of us might think that that's obvious. But I would contend if we were to dig around inside the human heart a little bit, just, just a little bit, on some level we all... We all have some of that in us. So some of you are here this morning and you're here because you think that, that somehow by coming to a church gathering, we can, you know, we can do God a favor. We can do some good. We can, we can earn some brownie points with, you know, with God up in heaven. Should we go this morning? Well, we haven't been in a while. We better go. We should go. Should we go? Should Even the phrasing of the question. Well, what are they going to think if we don't go? It's been like five weeks. It exposes the reality that we somehow think that through our thoroughness of commitment, through our religious obedience, through our attempts of, of selling everything, if you will, that we can earn the kingdom of heaven. We can earn the favor of God. We can earn the love of God. 
But that's not what Jesus is saying here. You, you have to pay close attention. Look at, look at the verse. Look at verse 44. Look at verse 45. What, what does he say? He says, when a man found it. Verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field. When a man found it. Verse 45. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant looking for fine pearls. What's he say? What's he say? When he found it. In both instances, the selling of everything to get the treasure, to get the pearl, was, was what? It was a response. It, it was done in response. It was done in response to seeing the value of. It was done in response, the selling of everything, liquidating of all the assets was done in response to seeing the value of the treasure. It was done in response to seeing the value in the pearl. So don't miss what Jesus is saying here in the parable. Your willingness to sell everything, we'll talk about that in just a minute, is not the way you earn the kingdom. But it's what you do when you see the kingdom. There's a fine line, but a big difference between those two things. So let's press this even further. If that's what Jesus means, what then is he actually saying? What does he mean when he says that the way you receive the kingdom or the, the way that you respond to seeing the value in the kingdom is by selling everything. Does he literally mean that if we're serious about our relationship with Jesus, if we're devoted to him, then we'll literally sell everything. We'll literally sell all of our stuff. Well, I don't think so. Parables are not prescriptive. That's why this isn't a commentary on how to you know, handle real estate dealings or business practices. So, so this is not prescriptive, saying that if you actually are a real Christian, you'll sell all your stuff. It's not what he's saying. But at the same time, we, we know that this can't mean nothing. What Jesus is saying here in the illustrations that he's using here can't mean nothing. It means something. And we see examples like this all throughout the scriptures. Even in Matthew's gospel, if you go back to Matthew chapter 3, uh, Matthew who wrote the gospel of Matthew, at the time his name was Levi, he was, when he was called to be one of the disciples of Jesus, he was sitting behind his tax collector's booth. Uh, he was literally at work making money, and tax collectors were wealthy, and I'm not going to go back and unpack that entire text this morning, but, but all that to say, Jesus looked at him while he was sitting behind his tax collector booth, called him, said, come and follow me, and what did Matthew do? He got up, walked out from behind his booth, and started following Jesus. All the disciples, when they made the decision to follow Jesus, every single one of them walked away from something. We see them dropping their nets. They're literally out fishing, working, and they walk away to follow Jesus. Uh, in Luke chapter 19, we see an instance of Zacchaeus where he has an encounter with Jesus. Zacchaeus, also a tax collector, also an extremely wealthy man. And in Luke chapter 19, verse 8, after Zacchaeus gets called by Jesus to come and follow him, Zacchaeus says, look, Lord, here and now, I will give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I've cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times the amount. So there's something about this response that these people have that, that looks something like this parable that Jesus is telling here. We see this in the book of Acts, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, where we see the church being willing to sell property and possessions and give it to anyone who had a need. 
And then, and we'll get to this later, but in Matthew chapter 19, we see the story of the rich young ruler, which is sort of the opposite of what Jesus is talking about here. The rich young ruler comes to Jesus, and, and he says, oh, Lord, what must I do to enter the kingdom of heaven? And they have this interaction. At the end of the interaction, Jesus says, well, there's one more thing you must do. Sell all your stuff. Liquidate all your assets. Give it away to the poor, and then come and follow me. And in that story, in Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler walks away, And it says this, Matthew records that he went away sad. Sad. Notice notice Matthew chapter 13, with great joy they sold everything. Matthew chapter 19, the rich young ruler went away sad because he had great wealth. So while I'm not going to suggest this morning that this means we must liquidate everything, sell all of our property and possessions, it still does mean something. So I think we have to ask another question (laughs) and drill down even deeper and ask, what does it mean? What does it mean to, in our joy, actually sell everything? Like, what is that act? Like, what is Jesus talking about here? And I think it would be helpful for us to fill this out even more by by having a proper understanding of, of what it means to come into the kingdom. Remember, the context matters. So Matthew chapter 11, 12, we have the distinction or the dichotomy between the crowds and the disciples. Matthew chapter 13, we have Jesus telling us these parables to ask the question, which are you? Are you in the crowd or are you one of my disciples? Are you in? Are you out? Are you weeds or are you wheats? Like, what are you? Which seed are you? Who are you? And so we've got to understand what does it actually mean to come into the kingdom? And I think it might be helpful if at this point we contrast the difference between the kingdom and religion. We've already done some of that this morning, but I think we need to press even deeper. What is the difference between the gospel and religion? And I think for many of us, when we first approach God, when we first have spiritual or religious encounters or notions, we have this idea in our mind that sounds something like this. My need is little, so what I will get in return is little. And what I mean by that is this. We have, on some level, a sense or an awareness of our need. We would all, I'm sure, if we just did a survey or had coffee or had a little chat, we would, on some level, all say, there is weakness within me. I have need. There is something about me that is not quite right. But we would also probably generally say something like, I know I'm not perfect, but who is really? In a sense, in a way, try and dismiss the level or diminish or minimize or or I don't want to say trivialize, but I will trivialize the amount of brokenness that actually exists in our heart. And so we have a small view of our need. And so our approach to God, consequently, is small. What we expect to get from him is small. We, we come to God and, and we, we say, well, God, like midterms are coming up. I could really use some help with my tests. And so we ask God to help, or, or God, I have some struggles in my life. And I'm not saying these are bad things to pray, right? That's not, that's not what I'm saying. But, you know, maybe, maybe there's some problems in your life, financial problems, marital problems, all the things we've already talked about. And it's like, God, if you could just help me with that. 
If you could help me, you know, with this job interview I have coming up. If you could help me, if you could just, and, and our, our level of need is small, our expectation of God is small, it kind of skims or stays at the surface, if you will. And we have this, if we're not careful, we have this proclivity to think I'm a pretty good person, but I think I need a little bit of religion, a little bit of spirituality, a little bit of Jesus, and that will help me be better. And then we view our pursuit of God and our relationship with Jesus as degrees of change. God becomes more like our personal trainer, there to help us shed a few pounds, get a little bit better spiritually or religiously. And so we say things like, well, I used to only, you know, I used to be one of those Christers, Christmas Easter Christians, and now I go once a month. I used to read my Bible never, and now I read it once a month. Or I used to read it three days a week, and now I read it five days a week. I used to give 10 bucks a month, and now I give 50. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. Now, let me just hit pause here so as to not confuse any of you. I'm not saying those are bad things. It's good to pursue holiness. It's good to pursue sanctification. It's good to pursue righteousness. Jesus said, Matthew chapter 12, verses 46 to 50, he said, my family, my, bro- my mother, my brothers, my sisters are those who do the will of the Father. Those are good things. They're good things. But, but, if those things are done because we think they're going to make our lives better or in, somehow earn us favor with God, then we have missed the point. See, what Jesus is not saying here in this parable is that coming into my kingdom is like some kind of self-improvement project. If you think about the gospel culture preaches at us, what is spirituality pretty much almost always all about? It's about self-improvement. This morning I sat in Starbucks uh, working on my my sermon. I went to the Starbucks just across the street of the new Starbucks in Belmont Park, uh, the Belmont, Belmont Plaza. Right across is a yoga studio. And I don't know what time it was, like 8 o'clock in the morning, and there must have been a class, because all of a sudden people just started coming, going, to the, coming and hitting the yoga studio. And I thought to myself, why, why are they doing that? Because it benefits them. There's a personal benefit, a personal wellness that they get to experience because they do this. If you read any kind of, like, life coachy book, what's it about? Self-improvement how to be better at blank, how to make yourself better, how to be a better husband, how to be a better wife, how to be a better parent, how to be a better leader, how to be a better employer. Again, none of those things in and of themselves are wrong, but at the very core, here's, here's the, the, the core or the essence or the foundation of what those ideas are espousing, that you are an okay person and you just need a few degrees of change in order to make yourself a better person. And if we're not careful, Jesus, Christianity, church, just gets lumped into that. It's just another yoga class for your heart. It's not what Jesus is saying. So what is he saying? Well, there's two things here that I think will help us and tip us off in these 
two parables. The first is this. Look at the image that Jesus uses in all of Matthew chapter 13 to describe what he is talking about or to describe what our allegiance to him looks like. What does he call this whole thing? A kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is like. The kingdom of heaven is like. And then what is the response of both men in this parable, the man and the merchant, to the kingdom of heaven? They sold everything. So, so how does this all then fit together? What's the point that Jesus is trying to make? What's the point that I'm trying to make? Jesus is saying that to come to me, to be in my kingdom, to be my follower, to not be one of the crowds, but to be one of my family, one of my disciples. It means to move into a new reality. It's not just a self-improvement project. It's not just degrees of change. It's not just make yourself a little bit better, but it's to enter into a new kingdom reality. Uh, The language the apostle Paul uses in 2 Corinthians is he talks about our coming to faith in Jesus as us becoming a new creation. Jesus talks about this in John's gospel when he describes us being born again. The Apostle Paul, when he talks about the gospel, he talks about it in terms of it it being a power or a force that radically changes, radically transforms us. Now, again, let me be clear about something. What I'm not saying is once we've come into the kingdom of heaven, we're all of a sudden perfect. That's, That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is there is a reality that we have to wrestle with, that we have to grapple with about what it means to come to faith in Jesus and to actually be a follower of Jesus. That means we shift from this world, this kingdom that is kingdom of Christ, where I am ruling, I am reigning, and I am self-sovereign to the kingdom of Jesus where he is ruling, he is reigning, and he is sovereign. Where he calls the shots. He has authority. He is now king and I am no longer king. Now I want to just ask a question here at this point. Again, let me ask it. I want to be careful here. I don't want to mislead any of us. What I don't want to ask is, are you perfect? Have you figured out all your stuff? I think I used to say this a lot more than I do. I probably need to start saying it a little bit more. But if you follow me around for 15 minutes, you will realize that I'm very unimpressive. So I'm still journeying. I'm still figuring this thing out. Okay? But have you had what we would call a come-to-Jesus moment? Not a come to church moment. Uh, not a degrees of change moment. Not a, not a go to the gym with Jesus on a Sunday morning at 10 moment. But a moment where you have actually transferred your allegiance from the kingdom of you to the kingdom of Jesus, of him. I'm not going to prescribe what that needs to look like. It doesn't have to look like a late night on the last night of summer camp or you frothing and snot face crying, you know, ugly face crying at the foot of your bed or on a Sunday morning. But have you ever had this moment where the gospel has come on you with power where you have, you have said, yeah, Jesus, you're, you're king and I'm not. Because that's what Jesus is getting after here. There's a stark difference between a person in the kingdom and not. Uh, Let me give you an example of what this might look like. And and this is a bit of a tangent, but I think it's a a helpful one that will help you understand what it looks like 
when Jesus is the king, when he is sovereign, when you have become a kingdom person? dangerous question to ask on a Sunday morning in a church gathering, but how many of you have read the Bible and you've read something that you don't like? Put your hand up. If you've read the Bible, you read something that you don't like. You don't agree with, it bothers you. Okay, some of you are honest, some of you are liars, and some of you just never read the Bible. Because <laughs> if the answer to that question is no, then you're not being truthful with yourself, okay? Because like, I mean, this text right here should be like, oh yeah, this morning actually, those two verses you just read, not a big fan of what you're throwing down right now. Right, if you're just being honest, like, you know, smile, pretend plastic church, I get it, I get it, you know. But if we're just being honest, there's stuff in there we don't like. It says stuff about all kinds of things that are a problem. Uh, there's social things, there's, there's sexual things, there's stuff about our money, there's all kinds of stuff in there. There's historical stuff in there that we're like, I don't know if I like that. I'm not sure if I like a God who would do that. I'm not sure if I like a Bible that would say that. I'm not sure I'd like a church that would preach that. I get it. I totally get it. That's the experience I have. Now, here's the question that we have to answer then and how this fits in with what Jesus is saying is, what do we do when that happens? See, the question isn't, do you agree with everything in the Bible? The question is, what do you do when you come across things that you don't agree with in the Bible? See, degrees of change would be, well, when I started, I, you know, there's verses I liked and verses I didn't like. And over time, I gradually, you know, I used to be 90% of the Bible I liked in 10, I didn't. Now it's 91 and 99, so I'm growing. That's still self-sovereignty. That's still I'm in control. That's still I call the shots. And for us who have have moved from our kingdom into God's kingdom, it means that there's a new king. And when there's a new king, guess what happens? There's sometimes where the king is going to call us to do things. He's going to say things. And we're not going to like them. If you're a parent, you should know exactly what this looks like. As Tim Keller wisely says, if your God always agrees with you, there's a really good chance you just made him up. And so I use this only as an example to give you a picture of what it looks like to actually come into the kingdom. So back to the question, if you can remember it, what does it mean to sell everything? What does it mean to sell everything? Does it mean we sell everything? Are we supposed to liquidate all of our assets, show up here next Sunday, and give it? I mean, by all means, go ahead. Just saying. And that might be one of the ways that this parable works itself out in your life. I'm not going to be the judge of that. And the thought of that, the thought of selling everything... It might be terrifying to you. But the real point that Jesus is trying to make here is far more terrifying than the idea that you need to sell all your stuff. And the fact that this isn't terrifying helps me understand that I don't quite get it yet. Jesus is not calling you to liquidate all of your assets. He's calling you to liquidate yourself. He's calling you to liquidate your person, your autonomy, who you think you are, 
All of you. All of you. In both parables, the men had to impoverish themselves in order to get what they were in pursuit of. In other words, what Jesus is saying here is we have to get to this place where we can say that nothing is more valuable or important than Jesus. Nothing. Not our spouses, not our families, not our homes, not our ambitions, not our dreams, not our property and our possessions, not comfort, nothing. I mean, Jesus says things like this all the time. All the time. Chapter 16, verse 24 to 26, he says, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their lives will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will find it. What good will it be for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? What is Jesus saying there? It's this parable. So the question that we have to wrestle with is, is this us? Are we these men? Have we done this? Have we liquidated ourselves? You see, it's possible to come here every week and not have liquidated yourself. It's possible to come here and think that following Jesus is about degrees of change, but it's not. It's about wholesale self-denial and giving up the sovereignty of your life over to Jesus. What Jesus is asking, which are you? Are you the crowds or are you a disciple? Which are you? Now, I want to ask one more question of this text, of us, which is this. Why would we do this? I mean, again, this is a perfectly reasonable question to ask. Why, why would I do this? This is the opposite of everything I've been told. This is the opposite of every idea I've ever been told by my parents. It's the opposite of what the teleprompter of culture preaches to me. Everything is all about me. It's about self-improvement. It's about building my own kingdom. It's about building my own life. It's about freedom 55 and retire as early as, as you can. And he who dies with the most toys wins. That's the, the mantra or the gospel that we've had preached at us for our entire lives. And so the idea of, of, of selling things and giving them away, the idea of liquidating assets, it's, it's so foreign to us. But the idea of liquidating self, self-denial, that's the complete opposite of everything that we've ever had told to us or taught to us. So why would we do it? What would have to be true of the treasure or the pearls for this statement that we would sell everything, liquidate ourselves with joy? What would have to be true of the treasure or the pearls for that statement to be true of us? the treasure, the pearls, the kingdom, Jesus, we would have to see him as having impassable worth, 
impassable value, so much so, so much so that this would be, this would be a no-brainer. You see, notice what Jesus doesn't say here. Notice he doesn't say that he, uh, these men, they wept over their things, they labored over what to sell, they sat there with all their stuff, they looked at it, they pulled out their old baseball cards and their old hip-hop CDs. Uh, maybe that's just me. Uh, you know, they, 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 they looked at everything they had, the deed to their house, everything. They just wept over it. They wept and they cried and they labored and then they sold it and then they went to Jesus and then they had great joy. Doesn't say that. It says these men looked at Jesus and then they got joy. They saw the value of Jesus and with great joy, it was easy to shed themselves of all of their things. So what then is it about the kingdom? What then is it about Jesus that has such great value? This is where I think C.S. Lewis is helpful. In his book, Mere Christianity, he writes this about the process by which one enters into the kingdom and what happens to us when we come into the kingdom. He says, imagine yourself as a living house. And God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps, you can understand what he is doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, and so you're not surprised. Self-improvement. You knew you had a little bit of need. But presently, he starts knocking down the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation that he's building quite, is that he's building quite a different house from the one you thought of. He's throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace. He intends to come and live in it himself. See, what Jesus is saying here in this parable is that if you are willing to give up all of yourself, your self-sovereignty, if you're willing to liquidate who you are as a person and come to him, he does this beautiful thing where he recreates you. He remakes you. He gives you a new heart. He gives you new affections. He gives you new desires. He makes you into uh, not a cottage, but into a palace. And then get this, where he can come and dwell. So what is the treasure What is the pearl of great price? What is the treasure buried in a field? What is it? Is it the blessing of God? No. No, it's not. Is it that your life is going to go well from here? No, 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 no. No, it's not. It's that you get God. You get Jesus. You get him. He is yours and you are his. And the question of the parable, the question that Jesus is asking is, is he worth it? 
and we'll nod. We'll nod. But we'll just go about our merry way. Is he worth liquidating all of yourself? See, Jesus is critiquing our small ideas about who God is, and he's critiquing our small ideas about our need. And what he's saying is you're far more broken than you realize, but God is far more greater than you could ever imagine. And when you come to the realization of that, you will sell it all. Because you recognize his impassable worth. Won't turn there for the sake of time, but I've already alluded to this story in Matthew chapter 19 where the rich young ruler comes to Jesus and he says, Jesus, I'm a pretty good guy. I've kept all the commandments. I've done everything that has been asked of me. What now must I do to inherit the kingdom of heaven? In other words, Jesus, degrees of change, self-improvement, I've earned my way. I've done, I went to church. I'm, in, I'm doing all the things. I'm jumping through all the hoops. What else do I got to do? Just let me into the kingdom. And Jesus looked at him and he said, I already quoted this verse, but he said, sell everything you have and give it away to the poor. And the man went away sad because he had great wealth. Don't miss the point. If you love your life, if I love my life more than I love Jesus, then I am the rich young ruler, and so are you. You will go away sad. If this idea of getting Jesus, if getting him, getting him, getting to have him, if it doesn't lead to great joy, that selling everything seems like the obvious conclusion, then you have yet to fully grasp who he is. If it's just a little religion or spirituality that you're looking for, or a little self-improvement or self-help, this will not work. As one author wrote, Christianity makes a lousy hobby. So the question still stands. Which are you? Which am I? It's the idea of Jesus. Is it enough? That it makes me want to liquidate everything, all of me, to run towards him? Let me pray for us. Jesus, we thank you for your grace and your mercy. We thank you that though we are weak, you are strong. And I think on some level, we all resonate with this parable. This parable is a window into the deepest part of our heart where we go like, I I think I've done this. I think, I think so. And what's 
beautiful about the way that you work is that it never ends. The depth of our brokenness, it never ends. It's unending. We're far more broken than we recognize or even realize. But just as the Apostle Paul says, where sin abounds, your grace is more, so too is your grace far greater than we could ever imagine. And so, Lord, I, I just ask, Spirit, I ask right now, you would allow us to see Jesus beyond what our, 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 our physical eyes or, or the eyes that we have been given up to this point are able to see. Like, give us a picture of him that is so clear, so radiant, so glorious. This just makes sense. you right now, Spirit, speak and move, save and rescue and redeem us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.